This is Larie Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. Welcome back, guys. This conversation we're about to have is one I have been thinking about a lot. My guest is the one and only Dr. Kelly Carter-Jackson. She is an associate professor in the Department of Africana Studies at Wellesley College. She was also the 2019 and 2020 Newhouse Faculty Fellow for the Center of Humanities. Uh, her, her research focuses on slavery and the abolitionists, one of my favorite topics in the entire world to discuss, and violence as a political discourse, historical film, and black women's history. She earned her B.A at the amazing Howard University. I think everybody of note went to Howard. Clearly, that's the pattern here. Uh, her PhD from Columbia, working with historian Eric Foner. Her book, Force and Freedom, Black Abolitionists and the Politics of Violence, examines the conditions that led some black abolitionists to believe that slavery might only be abolished by violent force. It's a side of the conversation we don't often hear about. Dr. Carter Jackson, it is truly a pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was quite an introduction. And yes, everybody who was great went to Howard. Yeah, clearly. I mean, I, I did not go to Howard, but I feel like I'm Howard adjacent. So, you know, <laughs> I surround myself with Howardites. We'll take it. There it is. There it is. There it is. You know, Dr. Carter Jackson, we often think about slavery abolitionists as as white people who were Quakers who had a moral obligation mm. to resist slavery and who clutched their pearls at the horrors of the South <laughs> of the South, right? We act like slavery wasn't in the North. Mm -hmm. Why is that an accurate read of the abolitionist history and the movement that really helped to spur the end of enslavement of African people? No, Mm. actually nothing could be further from the truth. And I, um, I mean, part of my work and, and other scholars work is to really undo this myth and get students to sort of relearn the abolitionist movement, because it's not just about, a struggle by white men to free black men or to free black people. I think that we have like a, a stereotypical abolitionist in our head, which is someone that's like a Quaker or someone who's like William Lloyd Garrison. But when I think of an abolitionist, I think of William Still, I think of Harriet Tubman, I think of Sojourner Truth, I think of Frederick Douglass, I think of black men and women were really the first abolitionists. I mean, no one had to tell black people that slavery was wrong. They knew that. And they were the first people to advocate for their freedom and advocate for their immediate emancipation and actually take it further than white abolitionists, which is to advocate for their human equality. So Mm. a lot of abolitionists would push for the end of the institution of slavery, but they were still... um, like low-key racist, like, yeah. <laughs> they still didn't really believe in like the full humanity and equality of the races. And so black people are responsible for making the movement a twofold mission of emancipation and equality. Mm. You know, I, I, I knew I was going to love this conversation. So the idea of being an abolitionist while still being low-key racist, that to me is like Lincoln, like that's President Lincoln. He's like, I mean, you know, I'll free you, but like if I didn't have to, I really wouldn't be breaking my back to do yes. all this. Like I'm going to do yes. it, but I'm not really trying to do it, do it. And I remember one of in the Lincoln, uh, the Stephen Douglas debates where uh, they talk about the fact that, uh, you know, he's like, you know, 
I, as much as any other man, am in favor of the superior position being assigned to the white race. And this is a speech where he's, you know, in this debate, he's talking really about like, you know, they're never going to be equal to us. They're never going to like marry us. They're not going to sit on juries. Mm-hmm. Certainly never going to be president of the United States. Come on, guys. <laughs> and I kind of put him in that category. And I feel like there is a, a popular resistance to the idea of having a more problematized understanding of who white abolitionists were, because we're dealing with their descendants right now, Dr. Carter Jackson. And so I feel like we got to oh, yeah. have more oh, honesty yeah. about this. Can you help us tease this out a little bit about what it meant for them to be anti-slavery, but not pro-black mm. humanity? Oh, I mean, that is all of the North. So I will say that I have to tell my students that there's a difference between being anti-slavery and being an abolitionist. So Mm. almost all Northerners were anti-slavery, meaning they were against the institution of slavery, mostly because it undermined their economic bottom line. So no one was going to like pay them $5 an hour when they have an enslaved person that's doing it for free. So a lot of white people in the North didn't want slavery because they knew that there would be no wage economy or no wage labor for them if slavery existed in the North. But it's not out of morality. It's not out of charity. It's not because slavery is violent or slavery is wrong um, that they don't believe in the institution. But people who are abolitionists, which is really a small percentage, only only about 1% of Americans were really? abolitionists. That's, yeah, a really, really small percent. And they were seen as radical. They were seen as fanatics. They were seen as, you know, people who are on the extreme. So, like, whenever they had their abolitionist, you know, like, campaigns or speeches or conventions, they were targeted. They were um, attacked. There was a lot of violence. Uh, anti-abolitionist violent waves that happened all throughout the 1830s and 40s. Mm. Um, you could be lynched, you could be tarred and feathered. Um, I mean, people really hated the abolitionists. And and adjacent to that, they hated uh, free black people among them. And so oftentimes when they had these really bad anti-abolitionist campaigns, like in Philadelphia or in New York or in Ohio or in places like even Vermont and Maine, You had black schools that are getting destroyed, black churches that are being burned down to the ground, black businesses that are being burned or destroyed, all because of this um, resentment that people had toward the abolitionists. And part of that resentment is is kind of twofold. One, they thought the abolitionists wanted what was called miscegenation, which is like the mixing of races, Mm. that if you free black people, the first thing they're going to want to do is sleep with our daughters um, and have these mixed race abominations, what they called it back then. Uh, But the other part of it is that there were also northerners whose livelihood depended upon the institution of slavery. So when you think about all of the cotton manufacturing, textile companies and factories that are located in places like Lowell, Massachusetts, or places like Connecticut, um, and New York City itself, where all of the insurance companies and the banking Mm. industry, it's all built upon the institution of slavery and cotton, then people had a huge investment economically and even politically in, in perpetuating the institution of slavery. 
So I'm a huge fan of looking at the past as a sort of an indicator as to where we are today. You just mentioned an entire ecosystem that existed around mm-hmm. this institution. And I, I want to know if you see any semblances or, or, or resemblances, I think is a better word, of, of that same ecosystem that is monetizing mm-hmm. and benefiting financially from Black pain in our current day mm-hmm. reality. Mm, I see it all around us. Talk to all us. Around us. There is there's a quote uh, that Joshua Easton, he's a black abolitionist um, who was speaking in 1837, 1837. And he mm. says there is a danger still that we might, and I'm paraphrasing, abolish the institution of slavery. But if we don't abolish the spirit of slavery, mm. he says the spirit which makes color a mark of degradation we will still be fighting these things over and over again. And so he's like, hey, hey, don't just stop at slavery. Like, we have to deal with the spirit of slavery, which is basically anti-blackness. We have to deal with the fact that you have made color a mark of degradation. And so the fact that he's, like, saying this in 1837, and then you fast forward to, like, 2021, Mm. we are still dealing with the spirit of slavery, with mass incarceration. We're dealing it with the pandemic. We're dealing it with healthcare. We're dealing with... School segregation in a place like New York City that can have the most segregated schools in the country. You know, we see it in housing discrimination. You see it, you see the spirit of slavery everywhere you go. We live in the spirit of slavery. We live in that, this space in which racism and white supremacy is what Ta-Nehisi Coates calls gravity. It is the force, the invisible force that holds all of us down, that keeps all of us tethered to oppression. Um, mm. And it's it's everywhere. See, I knew I wasn't wrong in calling white supremacy a demonic spirit. I just didn't know that they were calling it that in 1837. <laughs> I, I feel as though <laughs> I think I got that inspiration from the ancestors directly uh, from 1837. It's a demonic yeah. spirit. Uh, you know, for those of you, yeah. you know, in the black church tradition, if you know, you know. Uh, so uh, thank you. <laughs> Thank you for making that comparison, because I I think one of the the great failings of, of so many of our movements is that we have not adequately told this story in enough detail mm. and with enough repetition that it's readily understood and 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 learned in any real institutional space. Uh, yesterday, uh, mm. every day at the beginning of the show, I have a moment of gratitude and we talk about, you know, inspirational things and, and sort of just root ourselves in joy and appreciation before we get into the misery of the white supremacy demons that are among us. Uh, and yesterday <laughs> we were talking about uh, Nina Simone, who had said, you know, there's no excuse for the youth, our babies, to not know who their heroes and heroines are or were and Mm. one of the challenges I have is that everything that's in your head and and your analysis I wish we could spread it across the world I mean if we could spread if we could I was gonna say like a virus or a plague but that's not quite in these terms bad terminology like love like love yeah see There you go. Like the air we breathe. That's it. That's it. That's it. The fresh air that we breathe. And and I think part of that lack of knowledge and 
mm-hmm. a lack of a real language around violence as a form of political discourse has sort of kept mm-hmm. our imagination very limited in terms of how yeah. we can resist. Now, I will just say for the airwaves, because I do not own these airwaves, we are not at all advocating violence. But I would like no, Dr. No. Dr. Carter Jackson, if you could talk to us about how historically within the black community, again, we often talk mm-hmm. about the meek and mild enslaved resistor who just ran really fast yeah. from the run, you know, on the railroad. But talk to us mm-hmm. about what black people were talking about to each other about the use of mm-hmm. all the options to resist slavery, including violence. Oh, violence. Violence was always on the table. I, I mean, I, dare I say violence is the table. It is it is Ooh. one of the only ways in a lot of circumstances that you can navigate around oppression because oppression is violence. And I think mm. in, our, in this country in particular, in America, we have not had honest and nuanced conversations about violence and about force and how it gets used and how it gets manipulated. I think we have a double standard. We have two stories that get told. One is give me liberty or give me death and the founding fathers. And we we have all these romantic ideas about guns and patriotism when it comes to a very white perspective. And then when it comes to the black perspective, we have a very like, hey, you know, lift every voice and sing, take a hand, (laughs) you know, put down your gun, like very passive aggressive uh, way of looking at resistance. And I push back on that a lot because the abolitionist movement was something that black abolitionists saw you needed all tools in your in your toolbox, in your kit, and that you could not just run away, that running away often required force. You often were faced with slave catchers or the threat of being caught and and it was literally life or death. It was you go back to the social death of slavery or you die fighting to get to freedom. Mm. Like those Ooh, were your wait, only Wait, 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 wait. I need you to say that one more time because you done hit me in my spirit about 5011 times. And if I had a button for shouting music, it would be on right now. Please repeat what you just said. But I mean, the, the, the social death, this is what um, Orlando Patterson wrote about decades ago, where he says slavery is a social death. It is a death in that you are not necessarily dying physically, but you have no rights. You are not a human being. You don't have the ability to own not even your own body, but your own children. Everything that you possess within you and outside of you is outside of your control. And so mm. to live in a world in which you are chattel, you are subhuman, you are someone's capital, someone's cash, someone can sell you if they're hard up financially and use you as legal tender, as economic tender. That is what enslaved people were. Mm. So when enslaved people realized that the options for getting freedom are I may have to leave, but also I may have to kill someone while I'm leaving. It's no surprise that Harriet Tubman is armed on every single mission she takes into the South. Mm. She always kept a gun on her. She always kept a, a dirk knife. Like she would never go unprotected. And she was not alone in that sentiment. Almost all black abolitionists armed themselves with dirk knives, with shivs, um, when they saw other people that were going to be captured, they would arm themselves with either firearms, sometimes farm equipment, um, whatever they had at their disposal to protect themselves or their loved ones or their kin or even a stranger from being returned into slavery. So my book is really all about 
you know, I talk, the title is Force and Freedom, but it's really like forcing freedom. Like you have mm. to force your way to freedom. You can't just say, hey, look, now I'm free, or we'll just wait for the 13th Amendment as though that was inevitable. <laughs> it, was, mm. it was not. You know, all of it came through, all change comes through continuous struggle, um, really fought, hard fought, won for struggle. And so I tell a lot of stories in the book just about black um, people that, that use force and use violence um, to get free. The book is Force and Freedom, Black Abolitionists and the Politics of Violence. I, I want to talk more and interrogate more that uh, the choices that enslaved and, and abolitionist Africans were making at that time, because I think that conversation is one that we don't hear enough of. Uh, and, and it's really mm. important, I think, for informing how we discuss this topic today, uh, particularly as we see a resurgence, a, a, a sweeping the nation kind of resurgence of white mm. nationalist violence. There is you know, we are yeah. still very much in our community sort of enthralled with the idea of nonviolent resistance uh, to the exclusion of other forms of resistance. Now, I, I'm, you know, I'm in mm -hmm. favor of, of uh, I'm in favor of effective resistance, be it violent or nonviolent, depending on the conditions and the circumstances. You know, if we are facing a, mm -hmm. a, a, a you know, a weapon of mass destruction and I have a one that will allow me to defend myself, well, then I, I, I'm, I'm yeah, clear yeah. that violence in that reality makes sense. If it is a situation that can be resolved with nonviolent uh, resistance, I think that that is an option that should be explored. I think everything should be on the table, particularly yeah. as you just said, well, violence is the should table. should always be on the table. Like I, yes. I, you know, part of my argument is protective violence. Like all people have a right to protect themselves, to protect mm. their loved ones. To, and it's more, when I talk about protective violence, it's more than just self-defense. It's more than just like someone breaks into your home and they're trying to kidnap you or something like that. But it is, you have an obligation to protect the marginalized, to protect the most vulnerable, to protect mm. your community from violent, oppressive onslaught, that we ought to be looking out for one another and finding ways to defend one another. And so it works, it works really well in the 19th century because there is the institutional slavery. It works kind of well in the long freedom struggle and in the civil rights movement. Um, because people understood the Klan or they understood the terror of the mob. I think now it is more difficult to put something like protective violence into practice because mm. we're, we are constantly moving the, the goalposts about what racism is or what qualifies as, like, violence or oppression. And so it makes it difficult to, like, I hate to use the phrase, but stand your ground in terms of how mm. you combat white supremacy because we're always saying, no, 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 that's not white supremacy. Or no, no, that's, that's not racism. These white guys that go to Michigan and go to the state capitol with their rifles and their militia, like, they're just asserting their own rights. But you've never seen black people, you know, uh, storming capitol like you saw on January 6th. You've never seen black people bomb a church with four little white girls in it. You've mm. never seen black people enact the kind of violence that white supremacy enacts on us. But I think when you do see is black people using gums and arms to protect themselves, to protect their communities, to protect themselves from, from greater harm. And we don't do enough of discussing what that looks like. Let's discuss what that looks like. Talk to us about how mm. that shows up throughout history and, and what we can look to today as a current example. Mm, that's really good. 
So I I could talk about this for hours. But like in the book, okay, I'm just I gonna preemptively about... say that you're gonna have to promise to come back because you're becoming this yes, is already like this is already a part one. I'm seeing this having to be a multi part discussion. Okay, go ahead, go ahead. I will absolutely come back. One of the stories I I really like to tell a lot is about the Christiana resistance, and this takes place um, with William and Eliza Parker. William and Eliza Parker are they themselves? Uh, fugitive slaves, which we're now, the field is now moving away from the term fugitive slaves and calling them freedom seekers, which I love. So they were freedom seekers living on the border. Pennsylvania is a free state. Maryland is a slave state. So a lot of um, enslaved people left Maryland, like Frederick Douglass, like Harry Tubman, to get to Pennsylvania or to go further north. Um, But they're set up shop right on the border specifically for freedom seekers to come to them. And then they tell the rest of their community, hey, we're going to start our own Lancaster Black Self-Protection Society. That's what they call themselves, the Black Mm. Self-Protection Society. And they say, if anybody comes to us trying to get free, trying to run away from their their slaveholders, we will protect them. And their mantra says, even at the risk of our own lives. And so there's one really incredible story in which four enslaved men run away from their slaveholders in Maryland. They make it to Pennsylvania. They get all the way to William and Eliza Parker's house. They ask them for shelter. Of course, they're like, yes, come stay with us. We'll hide you in the attic. Within hours, Edward Gorsuch, who is the owner, the slaveholder of these men, comes to William Parker's door because he knows of their, of their reputation and says, I know you have my property. I want my property. Send them down to me right now. And William Parker is like, over my dead body. Like, that's not happening. <laughs> and then mm. his wife picks up a corn cutter, which is like a machete, and basically is like, you want to do this? Let's do this. Like, oh, she was ready to ride. She was, she was ready. And what I think is so interesting about that story, too, is that her brother-in-law starts to sort of panic, saying, like, just give them up, just give them up. And she's like, I will chop off your head with this corn cutter before I give up a person in this house. I was like, oh, snap. She sounds the alarm. About 80 people show up to the Parker's house, men and women, white and black, some armed with guns, some armed with, with fire equipment. They surround Edward Gorsuch, his son, his nephew, and the U.S. Marshal, who've all showed up at Parker's house. Mm. And it's basically like a showdown. Like, they're like, over our dead bodies, you're not taking these, these um, men. And the story kind of goes, nobody knows who fired the first shot, but shots get fired. And at the end of it, Edward Gorsuch is lying on the ground, dying. And William Parker writes about this in his narrative. He says something really powerful. He says, he's lying on the grind, ground, dying. And he says, and the women put it into him. Like, it's the black women who were there, like, snuffed him out. And I'm like, oh, Her, wait, ho, ho, hey, ho, ho, hallelujah. Wait a minute. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm just a tongue. I just blurted out a tongue. I don't even know what the t- <laughs> crazy and then the story's been there all of the four fugitive slaves along with william parker they all have to get out of dodge they leave pennsylvania they go all the way up to rochester new york they stay at frederick douglas's house frederick douglas says i could not look at them as man stealers they were protectors of human beings so i fed them and gave them shelter then the next day he helps them get on a boat to go to canada 
And mm. as they get on the boat, William Parker says to Frederick Douglass, hey, I want to give you a gift. I want to give you a memento or a token of the Battle of Christiana. It is the pistol that fell from Edward Gorsuch's hand. And he hands it off to Frederick Douglass. And Frederick Douglass is like, oh, my gosh. Wow. There's a court case. Everybody gets acquitted. Everybody gets acquitted. Nobody goes to jail for killing the slaveholder, for wounding his nephew and his son. Nobody faces any consequences. And it sent the message that if you come for enslaved people, you are involving yourself in, in the deadliest catch. And that your lives, mm. slave catchers, slaveholders, are at risk when you try to enslave us after we have run away. I mean, it's a huge, mm. huge moment. And there's a little fun fact at the end of the story, too, which is that uh, there was one person who was so incensed that no one was held accountable for the death of Edward Gorsuch. No one. And he could not believe that his childhood friend's father, who was Edward Gorsuch, that, you know, that he could be killed and nothing happened to him. And he vowed that he would get revenge. And that man's name was John Wilkes Booth. And John Wilkes Booth is the man that killed Abraham Lincoln. But his childhood friend was the son of Edward Gorsuch. And he says it's the Battle of Christiana that really, you know, is a is a turning point um, in how he thinks that he will use violence to perpetuate the institution of slavery. Oh, so, snap. one story. Can wait? Can we give a round of applause for the ancestors who put it into Eric Gorsuch? Let's just let's just thank them. Yeah. <laughs> Hashtag it's trust wild. black women. It's wild. <laughs> oh man! It shows you that like. Violence is not gender. It's not gendered. If anyone mm. had a use for violence, it was black women, because not only are they being put in the field, but they're not viewed as women, like only in terms of their reproductive ability. And they face sexual assault. They face the robbery of their children. They're also put in the house in the field where they're either in close proximity with the master for sexual assault or constantly being beaten and whipped. So black women used violence. It never surprised me that Harriet Tubman would be armed because mm. she faced violence. So it's not, this is not a gendered, masculinized, I'm standing up for my woman kind of moment. This is all black people who have an ability to not just protect themselves, but protect others are going to engage in that um, protective violence. The book, the book, the book. <laughs> My God, every single one of you need to get a copy of this book is Force and Freedom, Black Abolitionists and the Politics of Violence. Dr. Carter Jackson, we've only scratched not even the surface. I feel like we scratched the air not above the surface. surface. <laughs> I will come back anytime. I love this sounds bad. I love talking about violence. I love talking about how how it plays out and um yeah i'm happy to come back anytime oh we definitely must make that happen shayla let's 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 get this rescheduled because i need a part <laughs> five six seven and eight uh to this discussion her name is the one and only dr kelly carter jackson put some respect on her name she is the author of many many phenomenal writings uh most recently force and freedom black abolitionists and the politics of violence i hate to leave it there it feels like a cliffhanger but now that we know you're coming back i I'm really looking forward to continuing this conversation. Anytime. Thank you. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you so much. Anytime. Be well. You too.